Come with us as we do a deep dive into human behavior. This is the science of us. Join your hosts, neuroscientist Katerina Kuhn, Tim Mullen, and editor and senior producer Jean-Claude Rad, as we delve into who we are, how we behave, and why. Time to dive in. Now you're in a retail store, you're looking at two products, trying to decide which one you want to buy. All sorts of factors might come into your mind from how it looks, to what it does, to even the price that is being offered. Now, most of the time we think that we're actually in control of the decisions we make when it comes to particularly purchasing a good or service. But in fact, the subconscious plays an enormous role in making that decision for us. To get more detail on this, Kat and I sat down to look at the role of neuroscience and emotion when it comes to particularly purchasing and then how marketers have also been using different strategies to get your attention. She talks a lot about personalization and how that's evolved over the years, but particularly the notion is what she's coined personalization 3.0 and how people are now looking to use truly behavioral drivers to craft products and service messages. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get stuck in. Um, so Kat, today we're talking about the power of the subconscious and specifically in how we make decisions. And I think there's a great way that we can actually bring that to life from the perspective of how we buy things, you know, how are we marketed by a lot of people? Because often that's when we think about these subconscious triggers and even though we're in control, we're actually not in control. So decision-making is something that we often think we are in control of, but we're really not based on your research. Or can you actually tell me, is that the case? Because a lot of people would probably think they are in control of the decisions they make, but they're probably not. I think Carl Jung said this so poignantly. He said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will run your life and you will call it fate. And while he didn't have the tools to quantify to what degree the subconscious runs your life, neuroscience now would suggest it's at least 95% of our day in, day out decision making. So it's a huge part of who we are. I guess buying behavior is an interesting one because you can so easily run so many interesting uh, experiments um, with that that demonstrate that. So one one example that I always found uh, super interesting is how how music as a subconscious stimuli influences our buying behavior. And there was a great experiment from North and others um, who demonstrated that when they played German music at the supermarket shelf on the aisle uh, in the aisle, then then German wine outsold French wine two by one. When they played French music in the aisle, uh, French wine outsold German wine three by one. And um, when people were questioned at the checkout whether why they made the decision they made, they, of course, came up with all sorts of perfectly rational uh, reasons, but no one with a true reason. In fact, they weren't even aware of the music being played at the shelf at all in the first place. And I think this just goes to show to what a degree we're continuously influenced by subliminal, subconscious stimuli in our environment that very much shape our decision-making um, without any kind of awareness of our rational cognitive mind. So this is happening all the time. So there's, from a, I know there's another stat you've talked about in the past, which is particularly from an emotive standpoint, that there's all these bits of information coming in, but our mind can't rationally process that. But there's so much happening under that subconscious level that's coming in and then making us do things that we then come back to say, well, you know, I exactly to your point with that French and, and German wine example that we say, well, that's exactly why I did it. But we're, it sounds like we're completely 
not in control at all. It's actually quite scary. Um, yeah, kind of. Also exciting, right? I think it really, for sure, questions this paradigm that we've had about ourselves for millennia now, it's fair to say, going back all the way to Plato 2,500 years ago, that we are rational decision makers, that are in control of our decisions, that are fully aware of the reasons, that are able to make pro and cons lists and come up with perfectly rational decisions. But this, in fact, neuroscience showing very clearly is not the case at all. We are first and foremost emotional decision makers. Well, maybe we can talk before we go into, I'd like to explore personalization a little bit more as well. But from this outset that you're talking about where you're influenced by things. So what is another example? I mean, just say we talked about the supermarket one. You're walking into any sort of retail store and you are immediately drawn to one area over the other one. And you go in, you think again, oh, that's just my taste. We sort of refer things, well, that's the thing that I like. That's my taste. But from what you're saying, their taste is almost influenced by emotion as well. It's not, taste isn't even a thing. We're just labeling it as a thing. Taste, when we boil it down, is actually um, a consequence of your primal emotion systems telling you that something in the environment is salient or most important for you to satisfy your underlying emotional needs. This is a handful to process, right? But this is what it really is. So every single cue in the environment is nothing but a subconscious signal to us whether this thing will in fact satisfy our underlying needs. We're not aware of those needs again, right? So it could be our need for care and belonging. So I walk into a store and the salesperson recognizes me, greets me, has a small talk with me that speaks to my care system in the brain because now I feel like I'm being welcomed, included, warmly greeted. There's a human contact. It provides a sense of safety and reassurance. And so all of those things that then might come into our consciousness as I like this or I prefer this or this somehow feels right, right? We always know when something feels right or not, but the reason is that the environment was sending us certain cues that tell us that this is for us, that this will satisfy our needs. And so from a price perspective, for example, I walk in, some people are going to be driven to the really expensive. That's just what I want. Other people will be drawn to, well, I'm looking for the budget sort of solution here. I don't really mind if the product is crap. I actually just care that it's the right price point. What, what does that say about someone? Because you've talked about it. We've, we've mentioned this on previous podcasts, but it's probably a good idea to re- relive it again, just about the primal emotion systems from your research that you've looked at. Because what, what is that saying as me and the primal emotion systems that are driving me to go and seek out something that's cheaper rather than something that's more expensive and vice versa? So first off, very good example. Price is also a strong subconscious cue to us, right? Whilst there are certain people whose unconscious motivation or drive is to seek predictability, control, save money because that means safety, you know, have long-term savings because, again, that means safety and feeling more in control, where other people just are in ecstasy when they spend money because they're geared to seek rewards in the environment and get that kind of instant gratification, which is related to our play and seeking system. The other types I just talked about is um, related to our guard system. Um, where we want to save and be be safe, you know, have control. So very much the way we respond to price as a consequence is directed by our subconscious primal emotion systems telling us, go go out, seek that reward, get that instant gratification, spend the money, it's going to make you happy and get you that reward. Don't think about it later. That's the high seek system. 
that makes for impulsive shopper types, that makes for shopper types that have what we call price blindness and high price bias. So price blindness being when they want something, the price doesn't play a role in their consideration. And um, high price bias, even to the point where when something is more expensive, it appears more attractive to them. So then price becomes, high price becomes a subliminal cue for um, scarcity, premium, desirability. This is something that Apple do well, right? Scott Galloway talks about this quite a lot where if you're buying an Apple watch or you've got an iPhone, this is, he often refers to it as you're trying to put yourself out there to be a more attractive mate almost to other people because you're showing status. It's not about a phone. I could go and get a, a an Android phone and spend $200, but it's the people that go out and spend a thousand, two thousand dollars on a phone that they obviously want to have something else said about them. Having said that, also a lot of people have iPhones as well. So is it that every one of those would, if we're talking about a blanket, every single one of those people would want to just have that status symbol? Or is it because Apple is intrinsically tapping into a multitude of behavioral pieces underneath that? So you've asked many questions in this one that are all equally interesting. So just to uh, answer this attractiveness now of Apple to everyone, when you looked at the early stage of Apple, you know, and we look at Roger's bell curve of the law of um, diffusion of innovation, you could see that it was those high seek, high play, early adopter types that were willing to spend the money to get the reward of that premium, um, scarce and creative and very cool positioned uh, kind of product where now, of course, it's gone so mass market that other segments catch up with it. And for them, their motivation is different, though. For them, it's not about the absolute premium or creative or cool nature of the thing or the novelty, which it is for seek and play types. Rather, it is about to belong and be part of the in-group, which is the high care and guard drive. I must now also have this. And they might save up to actually get it where the others would buy it no matter what, you know? This probably leads us on to then the topic of personalization because personalization is something that I think is almost lauded as the holy grail. I think that so many companies have, have looked at personalization for a many number of years now. But what, from your perspective, you know, what is the history of personalization to where, from where it started to almost where we are today? And then I know we'll talk about personalization 3.0 as well, but let's just maybe focus first where it's come from where we are today so i think it's sometime probably post world war ii in the 50s in the 60s when consumerism started to really really take off that brands realized that there's an opportunity to understand their audiences a little bit better and i think what was really used heavily back then was demographics you know they were describing a demographic set of the segment certain income levels certain gender certain age brackets and so on since then The world has obviously very much moved on from that. And um, the current status, from my observation, is that most companies use a combination of demographics, but then also behavioral um, profiling. So I think there's a huge amount of investment in who did what and what else are they likely to buy based on what others who did the same thing. So this is the level of um, personalization we see on Netflix, on Amazon, on many of the leading brands that are uh, investing heavily in that But my argument is that this still very much falls short of understanding the individual, the human, because if we want to resonate with people at a deeply human, personal, relevant level, it's not enough to understand the behavior because 
just as we talked about before, buying an Apple Watch in itself can have very, very different motivations and drivers in very different people. So if we want to truly understand what resonates, not just based on what I could recommend as a product or proposition, but also how I present it, which cues I use to present it. And that goes into price as a signal, color, texture, messaging, tone of voice, imagery, everything. This can't be understood using behavioral predictive models. This has to be understood using the holistic human being behind the behavior. It's, it's so interesting because I, even as you were talking there, I know there's so many examples of where you start it from a, I remember back in the day of being in a marketing team for a financial institution and, and there was just talking about, well, what, you know, demographically, what are we going for? We're going for 35 to 55 male. And it didn't really go much further than that. It was sort of like, but even when they were getting these high level data points, people would start to say, oh, we're really personalizing this offer now though. We know exactly who we're going after. I think a lot of products and services still do that now. I mean, even startups, when you come up with a startup and a new business idea, you have to know who you're actually developing the product for. To that point, I just want to, that example, right? My um, previous mentor and hero, Dr. Hans-Georg Häusl, who I've trained and worked with in Germany, was kind of a pioneer in that field. He always used that uh, blunt example of that demographic segment you just described to reveal that you would be targeting Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne at the same time if you tried to just, they're the same demographic bucket, right? So I think this is a blunt way to put it, but makes it very obvious how this is just doomed to fail. Well, it is because you're missing so many, and it's so complex the way we talk about it now and, and the intrinsic motivators that we have, exactly the Apple Watch example that you just gave there. I mean, because even to me, you know, I could have even taken it on face value of listening to Scott Galloway saying it's all about status and class, but then you say that, well, actually there's within that, there's also multitudes of layers as well. How, when it comes to companies then trying to understand who they're going after, who they're targeting, how they're going to sell their product or service, like how it's very overwhelming. Like how, how do they actually, where do they get the intel to then say, I know I'm crafting an offer that's not just for a large audience and I might get a specific portion of that, but I know that I'm going to get, you know, 80, 90% take up rather than 10. From all our research, and that's now been going for more than two decades, we find that the by far most powerful level to predict behavior and purchase decisions is to go to the prime emotion level. Because like we said before, this determines uh, decision-making more than anything else. It's also the most fundamental and stable um, component of who we are as human beings, I would say. And so, uh, the only way to do this is to measure exactly that, you know, who are you at a fundamental emotional personality trait level um, and at a primal emotion level um, to then understand what will resonate with you because those primal emotion systems act like filters who filter out all the noise that doesn't matter to you, that's not relevant on an emotional level again. And what is a salient cue? Now, this promises to, you know, give the reward you're looking for. This promises to satisfy your underlying need. It's actually very, very simple, but you must go to that deepest level. So is this now what we, or what you've referred to? I know in the, I've seen presentations you've done. I know you've written a, a qualified academic paper on this of personalization 3.0. So what is the personalization 3.0? Is it what you've just talked about there? Is it how we bring that together now? to go beyond just, I'm going to split test A, B something, 
but actually give you something that I know straight up will talk to the deepest level of who you are. Absolutely. That's what I call a personalization 3.0. And the problem with split testing, just to go back to that, to split test A and B is how do you actually put together the most effective A and B competitors in the first place? If you don't know who you're trying to even put something together with, you can have two options, but they're both bad because they both don't actually hit the mark with the audience. So it's actually also using that very early on in the creative process to understand which kind of options we should even be testing because otherwise you might choose two that are both ineffective equally, you know? So yes, it comes back to that. Understanding the full human being based on their primal emotion makeup, based on the true and most primordial drivers of their decision-making that is the most predictive, reliable, and stable across any context uh, in, in, in term, as far as it goes uh, in terms of predicting human behavior. And then designing brands, experiences, and propositions that are 100% congruent with the message you're trying to send to the subconscious. So it's almost like learning a new language. You're learning the language of the subconscious mind where you're understanding every single cue and how that resonates with a particular primal emotion filter. Who's gotten close to this so far? I mean, are there companies that are doing this? I mean, I know there's definitely one company that we know that, that is doing this, but have you seen examples of companies that have tried to move from where personalization is now, from what a lot of companies would think is cutting edge to really what is the true cutting edge of this deep So interesting because it's hard to say. You definitely see a lot of good examples, but it's not easy to say whether they are just got lucky because their creative team had extremely good intuition and was in tune with their audience and was able to tailor something that happened to be them in their audience. You definitely see good examples, but you don't know if it was strategic and systematic or by accident. Well, yeah. Some brands, some brands, are especially FMCG brands, seem to be pretty uh, well in touch. You know, fashion brands are often really well in touch, but it's also because the founders or their creative team puts out something that resonates with them and then that automatically that tra attracts an audience that it connects with so you don't actually have to have that layer of analytical understanding if you're in tune yep. emotionally with your audience but if you're not and if you've got more than one key audience then it's pure luck yep. <laughs> if it works or not so i think there's not so many whilst our field has seen a lot of um attention on the topic of cognitive biases and shortcuts you know there's a huge amount of research and application also in creative and media agencies now using emotional shortcuts and cognitive biases um, which everyone out there of course knows and there's a lot of websites that use them like booking.com and so on where you can see they're trying to use scarcity and social proof and authority bias and investment bias and all of those things but what I'm missing is to see a strategic application of it based on individual segments, which is what I call personalization 3.0. What tends to happen is that a lot of brands just use all of those shortcuts and throw them all into one experience. It's incredibly cluttered. And in fact, our research shows that some cognitive biases work perfectly well with one audience, but actually really alienate another audience. We can't just use them all across everyone because just as much as there's no average human being, there's no average cognitive bias that works for everyone. Well, absolutely. I think the other thing that's coming to my mind is that one particular audience has been highly criticized for manipulating human behavior. And that's, that's tech. So big tech, yeah. um, the big platforms that, that exist out there. And I think that when you look at that, 
but as I listen more and more to what you're talking about, it's almost like they're playing on only one or two aspects. Again, almost it seems more blindly without understanding the true depth behind it of what they're trying to do, but they just can latch onto a couple of other things, trying to get that dopamine hit. You know, there's the the, um, the social dilemma, as everyone probably remembers that incredible um, documentary that really talks about how you can get manipulated into doing things that you don't want to do by an algorithm. But what we're talking about here is different from that. We're, we're talking algorithm versus actually deep level understanding. Which But this is, of course, a risk because we live in a world now where algorithms understand people better than people understand themselves. And therefore, it's opened everything up to um, manipulation and uh, not for the better, right? Because, like you said, those tech companies have become very, very good at knowing what keeps our attention, what keeps us clicking, what keeps us wasting more of our precious lifetime on their platforms. And now this sounds very negative, but it is quite negative, actually, when you look at the mental health repercussions of all the time spent on those platforms. You can't put it in any other way. Um, and the only reason these strategies works is because they exactly tap into those subconscious decision-making processes. The number of times I have, I've spoken to our um, senior producer and editor, John Colorado, about this, but we, the number of times I've sat there on my, my Instagram, for example, and it's amazing to see how fast the algorithm can work because I can click on a couple of things. There's this, um, there's a, a, a gym guy who just happened to start. There were memes that were created around him. I watched a few of them and shared only literally two of them. All I was then served up for was that. And then I kept going down this spiral. All I actually saw was this one guy. And I think JC would know because I sent him quite a few of them that the, all you saw was this one person. But it's amazing that the algorithm is, is when I kind of come back to the point around sort of blind versus what you can actually see that they're sort of using it's almost like a bit of a blunt tool because I've expressed some interest. Am I really interested in a 60 year old absolute ripped gym dude? No, I don't really want to just see that. I'm actually interested in a lot of other things that probably more deeply talk to who I am. I know that from having done my own deep sphere profile that I'm into the sort of laughter and that's probably one of the things that was motivating me there. But I just find it fascinating that we are having tech platforms using blunt instruments. Whereas when I listen to what you were talking about with personalization, there must be so many brands out there saying, I want to better connect with my customer. I want to better understand who they are so that I can create a meaningful experience with them, not sell them something, but create an experience because experience is now really what it's about rather than product. The experience you just pointed out there is exactly the algorithm tapping into just that narrow behavioral kind of interest right and giving you more and more and more and more of that in absence that's still good enough to keep you on there for a pretty good time it doesn't see but it doesn't see you it doesn't it, it could have understood that actually you've got a highly active play system yeah. and you're actually just looking for you know uh distraction you're looking for uh, escapism you know you're looking for maybe a little bit of dopamine Maybe also you thought, you know, I could be doing a little bit more exercise. I remember how I felt great when I used to do that. So all of those things, it doesn't understand that. But nevertheless, it's good enough to keep serving that up for a while to keep you interested until you're not. And I think that's a funny example that um, I quoted in the book chapter as well of Amazon, you know, where it falls down those kind of rudimentary, blunt behavior retargeting things where someone keeps getting targeted. It happened to be a blogger. So fortunately, the... Um, the example went public because it's actually so funny who kept being, target, kept being targeted with a toilet seat 
and I responded to Amazon saying, thanks, Amazon. I'm not going to buy another toilet just because you keep retargeting me. It's not as if I wake up this, you know, one day and think, ah, oh, go on, just treat yourself to another toilet seat. It's like, it doesn't actually work that well. Well, to, to that point, how aware are consumers becoming now of this sort of understanding of deeper self? So not consumers, people, I would say more broadly. How, how much more are they becoming aware or placing an interest on understanding themselves? I think people out there have become very wary about giving away personal data, personal information because of all the abuse that happened, not just in elections, but then also data breaches, all sorts of things, right? So people aren't stupid and also then they're aware of the effects of those algorithms and the detrimental effects. So I think people still look for meaningful connections also to brands and, and products, um, but um, I think they're getting more and more savvy at tuning out on stuff that doesn't really resonate. At the same time, of course, if we give away data, we really expect a better experience. Yeah. And if they can't be delivered, pretty frustrating. Um, the only thing that works for most brands is that there isn't the bar is quite low, I think, when I observe it at the moment in terms of how it achieves doing that really well. It's rather few throughout. Well, tell me though, because... You are doing work in this space. What sort of projects are you working on where you've seen a demonstrable example of giving the consumer something they actually want or giving them and tapping into, again, that piece around experience as opposed to just product where you can actually create an experience that they thoroughly enjoy because it talks to who they are more holistically? Well, it, it, in, a, in a digital environment, of course, you can start surfacing different uh, offers different products to the people that are after those kinds of offers in a much faster way and um, save them time searching and sifting through you know thousands of product and just based on that knowledge knowing there are people who just always want the top of the line just surfing first surface them the premium selection straight away and the other people who want um Social proof is for them the major purchase driver because they know if this product is popular, this is a safe bet and I don't need to, you know, sift through all the product information. I don't want to do that. You surface the most popular product for them straight away. So picking up who they are on the fly, surfacing the stuff that matters to them, that can be tracked, whether it's right or not the targeting, right? The conversion uplift is pretty simple in a digital environment. In a store environment, comes really interesting because there you can start thinking about all the senses, which is I find even more interesting, and think about the smells that attract certain people, um, the kind of wayfinding, you know, whether there should be a personal human guiding them or smart technology helping them to self-navigate. These things are all based on our primal emotional um, preferences. And so we've done interesting work of creating our latest generation of showrooms, for example, to draw the right audiences into the right areas that fully resonate with them. We've got all the brands there that they love. We've got um, the brands presented in a way that they love, you know, with materials and accessories that they would be looking for um, anyway. Um, so to create that maximum kind of connection and resonance with what they're truly after. And it actually has a, an, a direct correlation with sales. Well, we know that from our di digital experiments. This store is brand new. It just opened last week. So um, I'll, I'll come back and talk to you about that once I know. That's fascinating. It's just because, again, experience is, is what everybody wants nowadays. And I think that's why more and more people talk about experience because it's something to also connect to rather than just a one-off transaction. But as I, as I listen to you more, I mean, there must be marketers out there that say to themselves, 
how the hell do I do this? I mean, it's, it seems you make it sound really obviously simple, but it's like, but how do I understand who the people are that I'm trying to target? I mean, I even think of myself when I've done uh, programs and, and campaigns or whatever it might be, and even one that I'm involved in right now, where there's a specific need you know you're trying to solve and you're looking to target people in perhaps a contextual flow of where they're more likely to say yes or no. But then you, apart from that, you don't know anything else about them. You just know that they have a need and they might be aligned. You don't know how to best position that need to them apart from just doing it in one straight way. So how, how do marketers do that? So there are a number of different ways to do it. I mean, you can, um, behavior is a very good proxy for the underlying drivers, but only know once you know what to look for, right? So you can actually, we've done lots of work on using AI to kind of in real time detect based on someone is how someone is behaving, but you need a lot of data points to, to build that model. And it only got, I think it was 65, 70% accurate across multiple different set segments. It's not bad. It's a lot better than not. Um, but that's the holy grail to not actually have to even do any assessment. But then we also developed a really, really brief assessment called the Deep Sphere Assessment that's um, based on over 500,000 profiles and really distilling to the most predictive um, assessment uh, that we could possibly do, which now takes five minutes. So it's actually not too invasive. You can, uh, you know, do it in customer surveys or you can do it as a, as a quiz in between to start with. There are many contexts where people are super happy to do that because Interestingly, you know, more than 50% of Australians still read horoscopes. People are extremely interested in learning um, about themselves. And if you can do that in a way that's actually properly insightful and robust and that tells people something really valuable about them, they're super happy to do that. So it depends a little bit on the context, but um, that's, the, that's the most extensive way to do it, to do the actual assessment in under five minutes or you try and pick up cues from how someone moves, how someone behaves, some, how someone acts. So interestingly, as one example, just to give you one example, the, the pace with which someone walks into our showroom is very, very predictive of their rank and seek system. But the faster someone walks, the higher their general sense of urgency in life and the higher their second rank activation. And that's a pretty reliable cue actually you can use. I know that BMW used to do that uh, in Germany. Um, using such segmentation to, or such cues, I should say, to pick up who someone was walking into a showroom. So there's so many ways of, of doing that, depending on what category and environment you're in. Is it also about what people dress like? I mean, let, let's look at yourself. You look very elegant today. I'm wearing tracksuit pants and a, a jumper. I look like a bit of a slob. So what would you, if you looked at me, I mean, it's a bit biased because I know you know my profile as well. But if you were looking at me off the back of this, is it just that I like comfort or is it just that I've given up all hope on who I am? <laughs> I think, I think uh, one should always be super careful with making judgments just based on how someone looks. I've actually, I've learned one thing over the course of the years is that doesn't work. That's doomed to fail. We're, we're, uh, I definitely cannot say that we can judge someone by how they look or how they dress. There might be certain cues that you're sending that are likely to give away what your type is. So for example, because we all know your high play, right? I think even our listeners know that by now. Um, high play people are much more comfortable being informal. You know, like if you were a high rank person, you would never ever sit here like this. But high play people are quite happy being informal. That goes in, in the way they relate to others, the way they operate at work, the way they dress, you know? So I think that is probably a slight hint, but it would never be enough for me to say, this is what it is. 
It's funny, you know, because when I used to work for a, a large bank, I was always criticized as the one person. Everybody on the floor all wore immaculate suits, ties, everything. And I really went against the grain by not wearing a tie. It was a big thing. This was one of the reasons I left uh, German Germany and the, the, the industry of management consulting, you know, using neuroscience, because I kept being criticized of wearing different colored socks. But it's just not a thing for me in life. I don't mind, you know. And as you know, I'm also high play, high seek, so I'm not so extremely into um, obeying certain kind of standards or norms. And that was one thing I'm like, I don't think I would be happy in Germany. So here we are. It's so interesting. Well, I think everybody listening will probably be champering, or ch chomping, sorry, champering, chomping at the bit to say, how do I actually now do this? How can I start applying some of these techniques? We'll put some information in the show notes about it and where they can learn a bit more, particularly about deep sphere, because that's, that's basically one of the most breakthrough models that I've ever come across. Um, not saying that I'm anybody in particular, but I think that the power I've seen that create firsthand has been exceptional. I've seen it being used within teams, within brands, and that the feedback you get from people is quite astonishing where they say, I never knew that this could tell me something about myself, but I've always tried to make sense of, and I never could until now, particularly for me personally, you know, we had a lot of discussions around the guard component of my personality, which has been something I've been reflecting on a lot recently. It's amazing though, that once you have the veil lifted, once you have the understanding, it's amazing what you can do with that. But I think that's probably another conversation we can go into with many conversations on this podcast, which we'll do. But for now, thank you, Kat, as always. Very, very interesting conversation. And I think we will uh, put, as I mentioned, all that information in the show notes. That's it for this episode of The Science of Us. If you'd like to learn more about any of our guests, head to the website or check out the show notes. We'll see you next time on The Science of Us.